Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Stock market in the U.S. continued to grind higher today, although I still believe that this is a bear market rally. The Dow added a little better than 40 points, NASDAQ up uh, about 47, so a bigger percentage gain there, S&P up about 13 points. This following the release of the March non-farm payrolls numbers, a.k.a. the jobs report, there was a lot of hope that we would see a rebound in the month of March, because remember, in February, they initially reported just 20,000 jobs. Uh, created, which was well short of what had been expected. It was probably something close to 200,000 jobs. And the consensus for March was for 170,000 jobs. And we actually got 196,000 jobs. That's the first look. So that is, what, 26,000 jobs better than had been expected. The February number was revised upward. But just to 33,000, and I think I remember when this number first came out that there were a lot of naysayers that were saying, oh, this is crazy, there's no way this is true, let's wait for the revisions. Well, we've got a revision, and all we did is revise it up to 33,000. So it seems like the number was legitimate, although we did have a rebound in the uh, in the month of March, but I mean the rebound, 170,000 jobs is not a lot of jobs considering how few jobs were created in February. In fact, if you average the two months, it's a pretty weak number. The official unemployment rate that held steady at 3.8 percent, but the labor force participation rate, which I know a lot of people have been encouraged because they've seen that number notching higher, it dropped back down two-tenths from 63.2 to 63. So that's uh, some weakness there. Also, if you look at the manufacturing jobs, they were looking for a gain of 10,000 jobs. Instead, we got a loss of 6,000 jobs. And they took the February gain, which was originally reported at 4,000, and we only gained 1,000. So the markets were looking for an improvement over the original estimate for February. Instead, not only did we take February's number down, but instead of improving, we actually went in the other direction and lost manufacturing jobs. And if you look at the average hourly earnings, they were looking for a gain of up 0.2, and we got half that of up 0.1, and that is a sharp slowdown 
from the gain the prior month, which was up 0.4, which was better than had been estimated at the time. So now you average them out. And again, we're not getting much in the way of earnings growth, although we are seeing a rise in the cost of living. Uh, the average work week, though, was up. It ticked up from 34.4 hours to 34.5 hours. Nonetheless, most of the coverage of the jobs numbers was that it was a good report. It was better than estimates, right? Because they were looking for 170 whatever, and they got 190-something, so it was better than estimates. But again, the uh, wage growth was less than estimates. We lost the good-paying jobs, right, the manufacturing jobs. Those are the jobs that we need, and we added a lot more of the low-paying jobs. In fact, if you look at the composition of the jobs, better than half the jobs created were in education and health care. Uh, and, of course, a lot of those uh, jobs, some of them, of course, are government jobs. Uh, many of these jobs are low-paying jobs in, in those sectors. Uh, and, of course, the fact that we have more people employed in healthcare may not be a good thing if we're sicker and, therefore, we need more people to take care of us. That is not necessarily a good sign to the extent that we need more people uh, to manage our health care because we're not as healthy because we are a sicker population based on uh, you know poor diet, lack of exercise, whatever. Also, looking at leisure and hospitality, that was another big, big gainer. There's your waiters and your bartenders and, you know, hotel maids and stuff like that. So you take all these low paying jobs and that's better than half of what was created. And then if you look again at the household survey, according to that survey, we actually lost 190,000 full time jobs. And we only gained 60,000 part-time jobs. So the household survey uh, was you know, decisively weaker than the establishment survey. So all in all, I do not see a strong jobs report here. You know, we did get a lower than expected number for initial weekly jobless claims. In fact, the number was the lowest it's been since 1969. So that trend continues. But remember, this trend was in existence long before Donald Trump became president. We were getting these drops in unemployment claims throughout the Obama administration, and we were getting a decline in uh, the official unemployment rate. Although the, the unofficial number, the uh, U6 number, is still above 7%, which is much closer to being accurate than the 3.8%. And, you know, unemployment rates of greater than 7% historically are considered high. And, of course, even that number uh, it sugarcoats it because it only counts discouraged workers who have been discouraged for under a year. If you've been unemployed for over a year and you've given up looking, you're no longer even in that statistic. So when you go back and look at the unemployment statistics from the 70s or the 80s, uh, those numbers included all the discouraged workers, no matter how long they'd have been discouraged. So again, the numbers that Donald Trump is tweeting about and touting as evidencing what a great job he's doing are the same phony numbers uh, that Obama was hiding behind and which uh, Trump was uh, calling him out on. Of course, the government numbers is not the only area where where Trump is a hypocrite because today in an interview, um, not only was Donald Trump advocating that the Federal Reserve cut interest rates, right? Uh, but he not only wants them to stop quantitative tightening, right, which is shrinking the balance sheet. And the Fed has already said they're going to stop. They're going to stop, I think, at the end of the summer. But not only does Donald Trump want the Fed to immediately stop quantitative tightening, he actually called for quantitative easing. He said the Federal Reserve right now should be doing quantitative easing. Now, first of all, <laughs> Donald Trump is on the one hand saying we've got the greatest economy ever. Right? in the history of the country. Yet he's also saying we need the same type of stimulus that we had during the Great Recession. Right, This economy is so strong, yet it needs the same type of help that it got 
when it was as weak as it's been since the Great Depression. Now, which is it, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too, although I guess that's what Donald Trump constantly tries to do. Either the economy is strong or it's not. If we need life support, right, then it's not strong. But I don't think this is just uh, hypocrisy here. And again, it is hypocrisy because Donald Trump was a big critic of quantitative easing. I mean, way before he was running for president, when when the Fed was first doing QE, he said it was a mistake. He said this is going to lead to inflation, that it was the Fed shouldn't be doing it. And he was right. And in fact, it wasn't that it was going to lead to inflation. Quantitative easing is inflation. It is a euphemism for inflation. It is inflating the money supply. It is printing money and buying government bonds. That's what inflation is. You're expanding the money supply. And the way the Fed does that is quantitative easing. But they don't like to call it inflation, so they call it quantitative easing because inflation sounds bad. At least it used to sound bad, but quantitative easing you know, sounds good. But Trump criticized it, and he was right to criticize it. And it did lead to rising prices, except it led to rising asset prices, so far anyway. And it prevented consumer prices from falling, which would have provided a lot of relief for a lot of consumers who were struggling with falling real wages and uh, a a loss of uh, their wealth. Uh, Lower consumer prices would have been uh, some aid that would have been appreciated. And obviously, the Fed prevented uh, prices from going down and thus robbed consumers of the benefit of being able to buy more stuff for for less money. And again, of course, uh, prices did go up by more than the official measures. That's part of the, the flaws that are deliberately built in to the, the CPI. But when Donald Trump was a candidate for president, he was accusing the Federal Reserve of doing political things to artificially prop up the economy while Barack Obama was president to make the numbers look better, to make the economy look better. And of course, what the president was referring to was quantitative easing and also keeping interest rates low. He said we had a big, fat, ugly bubble, and that bubble was working to the benefit of Obama in that it made the economy look better than it really was. And he was warning about the dire consequences, the dire economic consequences that were waiting in the long term, as payback for what the Fed had done. And, of course, candidate Donald Trump was absolutely correct in that criticism. Now, as president, he is calling for the Federal Reserve to do exactly what he criticized the Federal Reserve for doing when Obama was president. But now he's president, and he wants the Fed to do political things because he is the beneficiary because now it's the Trump economy. So it's the Trump bubble. And so he wants the bubble to get bigger and bigger. And so he wants the Fed to make the same mistakes under his administration that it made under the uh, Obama administration. And he no longer gives a damn about the long-term consequences that they may be negative because the, the furthest into the future that Donald Trump can now see is the 2020 election, and he wants a second term, which again means that Donald Trump is not the statesman that I had hoped that he might be when I voted for him. He is the very politician that everybody uh, was voting against. He is part of the swamp. He is only concerned about his own reelection. He may have a different style than other politicians, but at the end of the day, when you peel back the onion, that's what you see. He is all about politics. It's all about his own career. It's all about making the economy look better simply so he can get reelected. And I think, again, this is more than just him being hypocritical. I think it also exposes uh, the lie. I think when Donald Trump talks about how great the economy is, I, I don't think he believes it. I think it's just talk. I think it's just a show that he's putting on. I think it's all public relations. I think deep down, if you could get um, the president in a room and he could talk in confidence, I think he would admit that the economy is not doing well. I think he knows that it's the same big, fat, ugly bubble that he called out when he was a candidate. It's just that he wants that big, fat, ugly bubble 
to get bigger. He doesn't want it bursting before the 2020 campaign. That is why he is calling on the Fed to do quantitative easing. That's why he wants quantitative easing. That's why he wants rate cuts. Because I think the president knows that if the Federal Reserve simply waits for the recession to start, before doing that, because that's exactly what they're going to do. In fact, I was watching on CNBC today after the president came out and said this. Of course, they're all shocked that he said it. Doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all. It makes perfect sense. But they're all now talking about QE4, right? Well, I've been talking about that for years, right? I knew QE4 was coming when they launched QE1, right? We, I said, you know, they'd have more QEs than Rocky movies. Well, we had Rocky Four. You know, that was the one where he fought Drago. You know, he, Apollo Creed died right at the beginning because the Russian hit him so hard he killed him. And so then um, Rocky took revenge and won. I think that was probably one of the worst of the Rocky movies. Uh, and uh, QE4 is not going to be any better. You know, whenever you have a sequel, they're always bad. And QE4 is going to be real bad. And it's not going to produce... I don't think uh, a big uh, boost to the economy because of lifting asset prices. I think it's going to sink the dollar. That's going to drag down the economy. We're going to have uh, stagflation. But but Donald Trump, I don't think thinks that way. I think he thinks that well, if the Fed just preemptively goes back to QE, we will delay the onset of that recession. And he probably is right. I mean, if the Fed were to go back to QE, the actual recession may not start until after the the, uh, the election, although it still might. I mean, if the dollar just tanks immediately and prices really start to shoot up, you know, oil prices today, we're now over $63 a barrel, about 63.20 something. We're up better than a dollar a barrel. So we're now up better than 40% on the year. Uh, in the price of oil. And this is, you know, another example of the president trying to have his cake and uh, and eat it too, because he has been very critical of OPEC in particular for rising oil prices. When the price of oil goes up, he starts tweeting about it. He tries to, you know, tweet it down and, and you know, beat up OPEC and, and, and about how we have to have lower oil prices. Well, if he wants lower oil prices, but he wants the Federal Reserve to debase the dollar by doing QE right now. Well, if oil prices are over $60 a barrel, $63 a barrel, now when the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet, right, and, and, and this is deflation, right, imagine what would happen to the price of oil if the Federal Reserve did what uh, President Trump wants them to do, went right back to QE. Oil prices would skyrocket above $100 a barrel very quickly. You know, and then, of course, the president would want to be critical of rising oil prices. Well, oil prices would be rising because the Fed did exactly what he wants them to do, which is create more inflation, print more money. Now, again, that is going to happen. But left to its own devices, the Federal Reserve would probably wait until it sees the whites of the recession's eyes before going back to QE and going back to zero. I mean, that's coming. Right. Uh, But I think what Trump wants is he wants the Fed to start that now, because if the Fed waits for the recession to start, the recession is not going to be over before the election. And if the economy goes into recession, well, now what is the basis of Trump's campaign for reelection? It's supposed to be keep America great again. Well, if America is back in recession, well, who's going to want to keep that? I mean, and if the economy is in recession, that means that the growth under Trump's first term will probably be less than the GDP growth under Obama's second term. So he won't be able to claim that the economy is doing so much better on his watch than it was under Obama's watch if the GDP has actually uh, you know, gone up less. And of course, if the recession begins before the election, unemployment's going to spike up which means that when Trump runs for re-election, we'll have a higher rate of unemployment than the one that existed when he was sworn into office. So if he's presiding over a recession, an increase in unemployment, and obviously we're also going to have an increase in inflation as measured by the CPI, prices are going to be going up. So if we have higher prices, higher unemployment, a weak economy or recession, you know, what, you know, what, what's the, what's his campaign based on? You know, I'm, I'm better than socialism, right? I don't know that the American public is going to buy that. I think that Trump recognizes this and that's why he's out there calling for QE. That's why he wants rates to be cut. 
is because he knows that it's all BS. When he's out there talking about how strong the economy is, he knows it's not strong. That's probably the difference between Trump and a lot of people in the financial media. They actually believe him. They actually believe the economy is strong. So they're shocked when he's out there calling for QE. They still don't understand that the only thing this market has going, the only thing the economy has going, this phony economy, is artificially low interest rates. The only thing that's propping us up is that the the Federal Reserve has got a massive balance sheet. And they don't understand that it's going to have to ramp it up again, whether or not it acts preemptively before the next recession or after it starts, the balance sheet is going to get much, much bigger and we're going back to zero. It's only a question of when we do it. Now, of course, what Trump is positioning himself to do is blame the Fed, right? If we do go into recession, he's going to say it's the Fed's fault. Right After all, I had to deal with rising interest rates. Obama had rates at zero. I had to deal with quantitative tightening. Obama had quantitative easing. But at the end of the day, interest rates are still much lower under Trump than they were before Obama was president. He's got lower interest rates than Bush had or lower interest rates than, than Reagan had or Carter or, 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 or Clinton or any other presidents, right? He interest rates are still very low and the Fed still has an enormous balance sheet. So he can't have all this and claim that we have the greatest economy in the history of the country when you're trying to say the reason it fell apart was because interest rates weren't as ridiculously low as they were under Barack Obama. Now, also another thing too, I mentioned that Donald Trump had already nominated Stephen Moore to be on the FOMC, on the Federal Reserve Board. But now he's also uh, nominating Herman Cain uh, to join him. And of course, you know, Herman Cain, you know, 999 ran for president, uh, the pizza guy, although he actually has some Federal Reserve experience, which is something that, that Stephen Moore doesn't have. So maybe he's not as crazy an appointment as far as, you know, that aspect of it. But, you know, one of the things that these guys have in common, both Steve Moore and Herman Cain, is they both come out publicly and say they favor a gold standard, right? And so you might think, wait a minute. Hey, does this mean that Trump wants a gold standard, that Trump is trying to put more or Kane on the Fed to really reform it and, and, and get them to operate more like a gold standard? Not on your life. I mean, what Trump is talking about now is the opposite of a gold standard. If we were on a gold standard, there's no way the Fed could go back to quantitative easing. If we were on a gold standard, interest rates would have to go up. I mean, in fact, if we were on a gold standard, the government would have to cut spending dramatically. None of this stuff is what Trump wants to do. So Trump is not talking about putting Kane or more, you know, on the Federal Reserve because he wants to go back to the gold standard. He wants them there because they're Republicans and they're partisan and they're his friends. And they understand, I think, that the Federal Reserve has inflated a bubble just like Trump. And their main goal at the Fed will be to keep the party going long enough to reelect him. That's the problem, right? They only care about the politics. They don't care about the long-term consequences. Now, of course, the Fed, the other guys in the Fed, they don't know any better, probably. These guys are probably dyed in the wool Keynesians. They have no idea that these policies are bad. I mean, I think uh, Stephen Moore knows that uh, what the Fed did was bad, right? It's just that he also knows that if they stop doing it, the hangover is going to come in because anybody who understands the mistakes that the Fed made, knows that eventually we're going to pay the piper. But I'm sure that Stephen Moore wants the piper to be paid when there's a Democrat in the White House, not a Republican. And probably the same thing for Herman Cain. See, I just want to, to, to stop digging the hole deeper. I want to start doing the right thing as soon as possible. And I do believe that this is all going to blow up on the Republicans because I think they're going to try their hardest to prevent everything from collapsing before the 2020 election. And I don't think they will succeed no matter who uh, they put up on the, the, uh, the Federal Reserve. But even if I'm wrong and even if the Republicans manage to keep this crazy party going for another two years, long enough to reelect Donald Trump. There is no way, no way that Trump is going to finish a second term 
without everything imploding. And of course, if it implodes on his second term, it will implode in an even bigger manner than if it does it on its first. Because that's the one other thing that I know for sure. The longer this takes to happen, the worse it's going to be when it does, right? The bigger the bubble, the bigger the pop. The more debt we take on to finance the phony boom, the, the more we're going to have to pay when we have the inevitable bust. And of course, the longer Trump is in office, the longer he's in control, the more blame is going to be placed on his uh, foot, uh, on him. So, you know, obviously he's going to get blamed for whatever problems happen if they happen before the 2020 election, but he's going to get blamed for anything that happens in 2021, 2022, 2023, if he is still in office. And again, if we kick the can down the road that long, if we don't get the day of reckoning until Trump's second term, well, then forget about it. I mean, then things are going to be so bad. The dollar collapse is going to be so horrific. The inflation is going to be so horrific. And of course, by then, the opposition would have really galvanized uh, and, and Trump will take down the free market. He'll take down capitalism and the socialists will roll in with their full agenda. You know, let's get rid of the electoral college. Let's let prisoners vote. Let's let 16 year olds vote. Let's make sure that we never have another Republican president again or that we never have uh, uh, anyone who believes in capitalism. And let's have all these government programs. And that's it. So it. I think that the best shot we have is for it to hit the fan before 2020, get rid of Trump, get rid of the Republicans, let the socialists come in, let everything implode quickly so people see just how bad socialism is uh, and get a big, horrible belly full of it so that they could puke it all up by the 2024 election and maybe we actually have a chance of real reform. And in the meantime, hopefully the Supreme Court can save us somewhat from all the lunacy and all the unconstitutional uh, bills that are going to be passed by a socialist Congress and signed by a socialist president. You know, one, again, example of this, uh, we got uh, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota with uh, Chris Coons of Delaware, a couple of Democrats have introduced legislation, which is obviously going nowhere, but is obviously part of uh, Klobuchar's uh, political campaign. But again, this is an example of the, the nonsense that the, uh, that the left is going to be selling. But uh, she's got a plan to require employers to pay into a pension for all their workers at a rate of 50 cents an hour which basically is like an extra 50 cents an hour to what you're paying somebody. So if you're currently paying somebody $10 an hour, well, you'll have to you know, pay them $10 an hour plus 50 cents an hour or you know, $10.50 to 50 cents would go into a pension. Now, there's no mention I read about it. It doesn't have a, 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 a limit where it only applies to larger employers. I think it applies to every job. So if you hire just one guy, two guys, you know, you still have to put money into into the pension. And I think after a certain amount of years of employment, the number goes up to 60 cents. I think maybe that's as high as it gets. But this is something that uh, the government is going to require employers to provide. And of course, the idea is that the employee is getting something for free, right? Hey, vote for me and I'll force your employer to give you this pension, right? He's going to just give you 50 cents an hour, right, for free, right? Vote for me and I'm going to make your employer give you a raise. Only that's not the way it works because the employers are not required to give anybody a raise except if you're at the minimum wage, right? If, 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 if you're already working a job, right, you're getting paid minimum wage and now your employer's got to give you 50 cents an hour extra, right? Well, he has no choice. Either he gives you the extra or he fires you which in many cases he may choose the latter, right? You may get fired because your employer doesn't want to pay the 50 cents. It's not about not wanting to pay it. It's about you not being worth it, right? Ultimately, you are worth uh, what you are paid, right? That's how the free market works. You know, I talked about that on my last podcast when I went over the nonsense about um, uh, the gender pay gap, right? There, if there's any gap at all, it's because women, 
right, are worth less than men, and that's why they're paid less than men in money. Now, many of those women may make up the difference but because they are being compensated in ways that are non-monetary. They're getting more flexible work weeks. They, they don't have to travel as much. They get to take more time off. But whatever it is, I mean, the only fair wage is the wage that you earn in a free market. That's what's fair, right? Because the free market doesn't care what gender you are. It only cares how productive you are. And in a free market, you're going to earn what you're worth, right? One way or another, whether you get compensated in money, fringe benefits, or other non-monetary compensation, the market is going to clear. There is lots of competition among employers for employees, and you get what you're worth. See, what the government tries to do in order to get the votes of the workers is it promises to give you more than you are worth. It basically promises to put a gun to your employer's head and force your employer to give you more than your work on, on the grounds that it's fair. And of course, nothing that the government compels at gunpoint is fair. What's fair is what two people freely agree to without any coercion. It's a voluntary exchange. But when the government coerces one party into doing something against their will, that's not fair. But the government does that in the name of fairness. And that's, of course, what it's doing here with this bill, where it's trying to con voters into believing that there's a free lunch. And that free lunch is you're going to get these uh, pension benefits if you vote for us. But, of course, what's actually going to happen if this law were to be passed and employers were required to pay 50 cents an hour into a retirement pension plan, what would this mean for workers? Well, it would mean that workers would have to see their pay reduced by 50 cents an hour because the employer would be required to pay the 50 cents in pension benefits as opposed to cash. See, right now, the employer and the employee are free to negotiate because if an employee right now wants a pension, he could tell his employer, hey, instead of giving me the money, why don't you put it into, into a pension or something and just reduce my salary? And if enough workers want to do that, most employers would oblige if they don't have a pension, they would set one up. Of course, you know, it does cost something to set these accounts up. And so that cost, of course, also has to be borne uh, by the productivity of the worker. Because if you have a job, whatever you're paid needs to be covered by your productivity, right? You are making an exchange. When you have a job, you're exchanging labor for cash or benefits or whatever, but it's an exchange. And so you're giving your employer something of value and your employer is giving you something of value. And what you give the employer has to be worth what the employer gives you. Otherwise, he's not going to make the transaction. So if an employer has to pay into a pension, well, then your productivity has to be high enough uh, to allow it. And, and all the government does when they force uh, one form of compensation, it just takes away the flexibility. So an employer is fine. So I'm going to I'm going to put 50 cents an hour into your pension. Well, I got to take 50 cents an hour out of your pay so that I have the cash so that it's covered by your productivity. Because if you were worth the raise, well, in, you would already have it. Right. If you could get more money, you would have already asked for a raise because if your employer isn't willing to give it to you, well, you quit and take another job. And if you can't find another job at a higher pay, then that means you're you're not worth the extra money. You're getting a fair wage already. The government can't mandate higher pay. I mean, what if they just required the employers to put a dollar an hour or ten dollars an hour or fifty dollars an hour? You think you're just going to get it? Right. The government could just mandate everybody gets all these extra retirement benefits. No, the limitation is your productivity. And of course, if they if mandate is so high, they're just going to mandate you out of a job because you, your pay won't be large enough for the employer to cut it in order to afford uh, to pay into the pension. So all of this is this something for nothing is a scam. The workers are going to pay for it themselves. The, same, the government did the same thing with Social Security. Hey, we're going to have your employer pay half. The employer doesn't pay any of it. The employee pays all of it. Just because the employer writes the check, where does he think the employer gets the money? He gets it from the employee. That's why when you're self-employed, you know, you got to pay both halves, right? They, they don't let the self-employed people off the hook. They don't say, hey, if you're self-employed, you only have to pay one half. No, you got you got to pay both sides when you work, when you employ yourself. Well, when you work for somebody else, you also pay both sides. You just don't write the check, right? You, the, the employer theoretically writes it. But if your employer didn't have to send that money to the government, 
for Social Security, he could just send the money to you. The employer is is indifferent to who gets the money. It's all part of the labor cost. So when somebody gets a job, their salary is just part of it. If the government requires unemployment compensation, disability, Social Security, workman's comp, all of those costs is money that is going to the worker, whether the worker gets it or not, right? It all has to be covered by the employee's productivity. And if all those other requirements weren't there, then the worker would get the cash. So all the money that the government is requiring employers to pay to the government is money that would have been paid to the worker, but for those requirements. The worker just doesn't realize it. He thinks he's getting something for nothing. He's not. Whatever the government puts in his right pocket, it's taken out of his left. The difference is there's a cost of the bureaucracy, so everybody is worse off as a result of this. And, of course, we all lose freedom as well because people don't have the freedom to negotiate uh, the compensation packages that they would prefer. They're stuck with the compensation package that the government decides uh, they want us to have. You know, one of the funniest things, too, about this plan is that in order to help employers afford it, right, the, the plan actually calls for higher taxes. On who? Well, on the employers, right? It calls for an increase in the corporate income tax and an increase in the top marginal tax rate for uh, income. So in many, in many of the employers then who are going to be forced, in theory, to contribute this, they say, well, don't worry, we're going we're gonna to pay you a subsidy by raising your own taxes. Now, of course, obviously, there could be some employers who don't have corporations. They're a partnership, sole proprietorship, so a higher corporate tax doesn't affect them. And maybe they don't earn a lot of money, so maybe uh, they won't be hit with the higher marginal tax. So they would get a little bit of a subsidy. And so to the extent they got a little bit of a subsidy, then they wouldn't have to reduce their workers' pay by quite as much because they could reduce the pay cuts by the amount of the subsidy. But of course, again, for the people on minimum wage, this, in effect, is an increase in the minimum wage, right? Because if the, if the federal government mandates that employers put 50 cents an hour into a pension for each worker, that is an increase in the minimum wage. Because let's say the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, and you got to pay $7.25 to the worker, but now you have to pay 50 cents into his pension. Well, you're actually paying the worker $7.75. So this is a roundabout way of increasing minimum wage, except the worker doesn't get the money immediately. He supposedly gets it when he retires at some point in the future. But again, it is a cost that the employer has to bear, and it simply raises the bar that much higher for people trying to get jobs who have minimal skills. If you can't deliver enough skills to cover the minimum wage, plus the mandatory uh, pension benefit, well, then you're not going to get a job. And if you have a job, you may not keep the job because you may be fired. So instead of getting a pension, you get a pink slip. Also, one of the other uh, factors that was propping up the the stock market all week, not just today, but all week, uh, was constant uh, tweets or leaks coming from the Trump administration or Trump itself about the prospects of this fantastic trade deal with China. I mean, we're closer than ever. Everything is going great. This is going to be the biggest deal ever. It's going to be the best deal ever. We're making real progress. I mean, how many times have we heard the president say this? But so far, there is no actual evidence of progress. We don't actually have a deal. Yet the president keeps uh, propping the market higher and higher by simply dangling the prospect of a deal in front of us. So it's not just the pal put that the markets now have. And of course, Trump uh, wants to really exercise that put, right, by going right to QE. He doesn't want to wait until the market needs it. He wants to preemptively uh, you just go right back to quantitative easing. But the other put that's behind the market right now is the Trump put. And the Trump put is all about the trade deal with China. But I don't think the Trump put is an actual deal, although that is, you know, really the, 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 the put. But if Trump actually has a deal, then the put's gone. What keeps the, the Trump put in play is no deal with China. That way he can keep talking about how a great deal is imminent. And that's what, what, what keeps it going, because Everybody wants to be in the stock market. I've said this. Everybody wants to be in the stock market when the deal uh, is announced because everybody is convinced 
that the deal is so good for the economy and so good for the market that they want to be long the market when the deal is announced. Now, Trump knows this. He knows the markets are anticipating a deal and they're worried about what might happen if there is no deal. And so Trump wants to continuously tease the markets about how great a deal is and how a deal is eminent and how, how much progress we're making. But I also think just like when it comes to quantitative easing and how Trump knows that we're in a bubble and he simply wants the Fed to be preemptive so that we can postpone the day of reckoning. Or again, he wants to lay the foundation for being able to blame the recession on the Fed rather than anything he's done. I think he understands the Trump put. I think he knows that the worst thing he could do for the markets is to announce the trade deal. Number one, because of buy the rumor, sell the fact. But number two, he has hyped this deal up so much, there's no way whatever deal we get is going to live up to the expectations, right? You're supposed to under-promise and over-deliver. Well, I think when it's come to a trade deal, he's promised everything. He has promised so much, it is a certainty that whatever delivers is going to disappoint the market. So the best thing Trump could do is never deliver anything. Just keep the trade deal in his back pocket. Maybe, maybe if the talk of a trade deal stops working, right? If he can't keep the market propped up by talking about how a deal is eminent and how great it's going to be, if that stops working and the markets are tanking anyway, then maybe he can actually pull the deal out of his, out of his back pocket and play the card at that point. But at this point in time, as long as he can talk the market higher by promising a deal, he has absolutely no incentive to deliver a deal which he knows will disappoint the markets, which he knows may well be sold as a buy the rumor, sell the fact, and which he knows means that the Trump put would have expired. Now, looking at some of the other markets and their re reaction or lack thereof, to Trump's call for more quantitative easing and rate cuts, some people might have thought, well, the dollar is going to get killed if Trump starts talking about why we need QE or gold's going to take off, right? I mean, obviously, if we have QE, that means gold prices should go up. Well, the price of gold really didn't react at all. I mean, gold was pretty much unchanged, I think maybe slightly lower on the day, 50 cents, the dollar index was pretty much unchanged, maybe a tick or two firmer on the day, you know, still above 97. So really no reaction to Trump's uh, calling out the Fed and advocating quantitative easing, which probably means that at this point, the markets are ignoring what Trump is saying when it comes to monetary policy, because they still believe that he has no impact on it. They still have some confidence in the independence of the Fed, and they still believe that despite what the president is saying, uh, that we're not going to go back to QE. And in fact, maybe some people think that now that the that the president has actually publicly called for QE, it actually makes it harder for the Fed to do it. Right now that the president has actually said that uh, he wants a rate cut, well, it makes it harder for the Fed to deliver a cut without looking like uh, they're simply doing the president's bidding. If they want to preserve the illusion of independence, then I guess they have to, you know, do the opposite or or not immediately do whatever President Trump uh, claims they should do. They're 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 saying they're data dependent. Now, obviously, if they understood that this is a gigantic bubble, or they admit it, the the data is only good so long as uh, the air is in the bubble, but as the, uh, the bubble deflates, as higher interest rates start taking their toll, then the inevitable relapse into recession is there. And of course, once we get to the next recession, it's fatal because I think at this point, there's no way that the government could try to revive the economy without overdosing us on stimulus. Again, I think if we go back to QE4, and we will go back to QE4, it's not about if, it's just a question of when. When we do it, the amount of QE is going to be so large based on the enormity that the, of the problem now, based on how much debt we currently have, how much more QE is going to be required, I think there is no way the dollar could survive it. I think we are going to overdose uh, on QE and we're going to kill the dollar and then ultimately we're going to kill the bond market as well. We have a sovereign debt crisis and we have a, uh, a, a dollar crisis. And I know, again, a lot of people are thinking that the place to be is going to be the cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin. 
and I think it's going to be gold. In fact, uh, Bitcoin is still above 5,000 as I am recording this podcast. You know, we had that big rally from 4,000 to 5,000. The whole rally happened in about a half an hour. And thus far, Bitcoin has been holding on to those gains. The question is, how much longer uh, will it be able to do so? My guess is that the rally was engineered to facilitate more selling. So I think people are trying to get out of Bitcoin and obviously generating some hype, getting some of the hodlers to start thinking about the moon again is a way to engender some new buyers to come into the market so that there will be some bids that can be hit. In fact, I read uh, an article, some PR again, uh, you know, designed to stimulate demand. This one had to do with Brock Pierce, who I've met a couple of times, lives here in Puerto Rico. Uh, I think he's in San Juan somewhere. But apparently he bought a property, a house in Amsterdam. Uh, dollar value of the house, I think, was about $1.2 million. I'm sure he paid euros uh, because, uh, you know, the Netherlands is, uh, uses the euro currency. But the article that I read basically said that Brock Pierce uses Bitcoin to buy a house. And the whole idea was, hey, hey now, you know, you can use your Bitcoin to buy a house. And But if you, again, if you read the article, Brock Pierce did not use Bitcoin to buy a house. He used euros to buy the house. The person who sold the house did not accept payment in Bitcoin. It wasn't like there was an escrow and, you know, a Bitcoin went in to close the escrow. What happened was Brock Pierce went to this company, uh, a third party, that loaned him money against his Bitcoin. So he was able to post a bunch of Bitcoins uh, as, as margin, as collateral. And against that collateral, he borrowed money. And then he used the borrowed money to buy the house. So he didn't buy a house with Bitcoin. He bought a house with the money that he borrowed against his Bitcoin. The real story is that there is a financial entity that is willing to loan you money against your Bitcoin. And I look at this as a disaster waiting to happen. Now, the article mentioned that the collateral is double. So in order to borrow a million dollars, you have to post two million dollars worth of Bitcoin and then you can borrow a million dollars and plus there's a rate of interest on the loan like any loan uh, and you know you have to pay that but my thinking is first of all if this guy Brock Pierce is really a billionaire which is the way he's portrayed I mean why does he need to borrow some money to buy a million dollar home I mean can't he just pay a million dollars and you know I mean if all of his money is in Bitcoin so he doesn't have any money I mean can't he just part with a, a measly million dollars worth of his Bitcoin to buy uh, his house he really has to leverage that up he has to go out and borrow money against those Bitcoins in order to buy that house so he can hodl those Bitcoins and not get rid of them and take all the added risk and now he's going to pay the interest which I guess he's going to pay the interest with Bitcoin as well but the key is let's say enough people did this let's say enough hodlers who wanted to buy houses or cars or whatever with their Bitcoin they all sent their Bitcoin to these Bitcoin banks and levered against them. They borrowed money against them. <laughs> What's going to happen? Well, obviously, when Bitcoin really starts to fall, right, as it falls, let's say it gets cut in half. Remember, they're they're loaning two to one. So if, if you borrow a million dollars, you're posting two million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Well, what if the price of Bitcoin falls and it's only worth one million? Well, now there's a margin call. In fact, probably somewhere along the way, there's a mechanism where if you get close to that number, they just automatically sell your Bitcoin right into the market. Well, the problem is there could be periods of time where there's very little liquidity in, in Bitcoin. And so let's say the market is really collapsing. And now all of a sudden you have a lot of people who have borrowed against their Bitcoin. And now that collateral is losing value. And so the the, the, the banks or these third parties have to now rush into the market and dump that Bitcoin to try to convert it into cash to cover their butts. Well, now what happens? What if there's no buyers? All of a sudden, the market can completely melt down uh, as Bitcoin implodes because so many forced liquidations are taking place at the same time because of these margin sellers. And then, of course, these companies could end up losing a ton of money because they may never be able to get the money back. So let's say that... Brock Pierce's Bitcoins lose so much value that the lender is not able to sell them 
for the million dollars that they loan block. Now, um, I'm assuming that these loans are recourse, that it's not simply, well, the only collateral they have is, is the Bitcoin. But my guess would be that if people are borrowing against their Bitcoins, that means they haven't really sold any Bitcoin. They're pretty much all in. Their entire net worth is derived of Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, if Bitcoin crashes, they're probably broke. And so it's probably going to be very difficult for the lenders to go after people uh, when the crypto market implodes, uh, when the, the people who have borrowed their money were all in on crypto and now they're broke too. So this is a very dangerous business model. And to me, probably the main reason that Brock Pierce did this is not because he wants to hodl every single Bitcoin he has. This is probably a publicity stunt. This is probably designed to generate uh, interest in this company to try to uh, show that, oh, look, you could use your Bitcoins to buy houses and to try to mainstream Bitcoin and get more people uh, to think about Bitcoin as money, just like any other currency, to try to generate interest in, in Bitcoin itself, not just in the idea of borrowing against your Bitcoin and, and, and you know, and, and and generating uh, fees for the companies that are organizing, uh, making these loans and are generating or earning the fees, but just in general to, uh, you know, to help tout uh, Bitcoin to try to sucker more people into this gigantic Ponzi. Anyway, in closing, one thing I wanted to mention, I'm looking at my YouTube channel and I noticed that I'm getting close to a quarter of a million subscribers. I'm almost at 249,000 subscribers, so almost a quarter million. I guess that's a that's a milestone. But still, you know, in 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 the scheme of things, I mean, that's not that many people uh, listening to my YouTube channel. Now, I understand I get a lot of people that now listen to my podcasts on uh, you know just on iTunes or on Stitcher or on Shift Radio. So I have a much bigger audience than is you know just what's on my YouTube channel because I've only really been posting my podcasts. I haven't been doing the video blogs like I used to and I haven't been posting as much content on my YouTube channel. So I suppose there hasn't been as much reason for people to uh, just uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. But if you're if you're not currently a subscriber, subscribe. In fact, if all of my subscribers, if every one of my subscribers got three friends to subscribe, right, well, then I guess I would be at uh, at a million, you know, because I'd get another 750,000 subscribers. But what I am thinking about doing is maybe doing some live content on my YouTube channel that would be in addition to the podcast, stuff that I could do. Maybe I'll do some, some Q&A or some things like that. I don't know if it'll be kind of impromptu or things that I'll promote in advance, but I think that whatever I'm doing on the channel, I think the only way that you're going to know that I'm doing it is I think you get an email or something. If I'm doing something, right, if you're a subscriber to YouTube and all of a sudden I'm doing some kind of live uh, event on my YouTube channel, in which case you'll be able to see me as well as hear me, I think the way that you'd find out about it is because you're a subscriber to my YouTube channel. So one way to make sure that if I do start doing that, uh, that you are immediately informed that you don't miss out is to subscribe to the YouTube channel now uh, so that you will be made aware of anything that I do uh, that is just YouTube and that is not uh, part of the uh, the podcast. 